before I begin, this may have something to do with what I'll mention in passing in my sermon, but Mother Morrison sent me this link this week, uh, an article by David Brooks in the New York Times, who I like a lot. He's written a new book, by the way, on character, which is, which is quite good. I have it on my Kindle. This is called Finding Peace Within the Holy Texts, and um, it's, a, it's about a book that has just been written by Rabbi De, uh, Jonathan Sachs, who was the chief rabbi of England for a long time. He's wonderful. There are YouTube videos of him uh, speaking that are simply outstanding, and uh, not in God's name confronting religious violence. So I commend this article to you. It is absolutely superb, and uh, it is very appropriate, obviously, for the present uh, state of things uh, in, in the world. So more on that uh, later, maybe. Uh, today is the Feast of Christ the King. In typical Episcopalian fashion, uh, we can call it the last Sunday of Pentecost, or we can call it Christ the King, if you choose to celebrate Christ the King. Uh, in the liturgy, the collect that we say, that we pray to begin the Mass, uh, is all but identical to the collect that is used in the Roman Catholic Church for this Sunday. And the Feast of Christ the King is not an ancient feast. It was promulgated, that's the terminology, by Pope Pius XI in 1925, and who was in power in Italy in 1925? <coughs> Mussolini. So there was a method in his madness when he wanted to speak about the, the Christ the King, or, or perhaps the more appropriate thing for us in our time and as Americans is the reign of Christ, the reign of God. Maybe a little easier. We're not big on kings. Uh, in this country or in, in most places these days. So we want to think about this in, in some sense. It's a celebration of the all-embracing authority of Christ, which shall lead humankind to seek the peace of Christ and the kingdom of Christ. That's what Pope Pius XI said when he promulgated the feast. But for us it means that we need to do some thinking about what it means to be part of this reign and how do we participate in it and what does it mean for, uh, for each of us, both as we seek to be connected to groups that are concerned about making a world where it is easier for people to be good, and also how does understanding uh, God's presence in Christ in each of us enable us to have the serenity, the strength, the interior self-regulation to meet the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of us on a daily basis. Because if we can't do that and we don't achieve some uh, sense of balance in that regard, we're not good for anything, for ourselves or for other people. Uh, this is sort of off the subject, but I was rereading a speech, I don't know, don't ask me why, by one of the bishops in the Episcopal Church who left, and he was the head bishop of the, oh, I know why, because there was a thing about him retiring from the, uh, the ACNA, the Anglican Church in North America. 
And it was a talk or a sermon he preached at the first convention of the ACNA. And he said this. This is why I thought about it and I'm talking about it in my sermon. He said, in the Episcopal Church these days, all they talk about is affirmation. But we believe in transformation. So I got to thinking to myself, suppose we have a community of people who are engaged in the process of the affirmation of those aspects of our character and life that are good, that we support one another, that somehow we believe that that form of acting in the world has uh, important, uh, an important effect on how things go. Don't you think that that also produces some species of transformation? This isn't an either-or deal. This is a both-and. So he was wrong about that. We believe in affirmation and transformation, and the kingdom of God is going to have all of those things present to it. So that is an important thing. I'm not going to preach on the first lesson that ended something with fire and swords. And uh, No, not today. And the book of Revelation, uh, it's in the introductory material, and uh, it has uh, the, it's not so hair-raising, but I always use every opportunity to say this. The people who read this book knew exactly what it meant. They knew all of the symbols, what they meant. They knew the, the, the historical situation of why that book was written. And they're talking about events that have already happened. The writer. I'm a subscriber to the view that, it, that, that is how we understand the book of Revelation. It's a, it's a school of thinking in scholarship called preterism. That what is being described has already occurred. Just like we could say, we've been reading through Mark's gospel, and Jesus, I think it was last week, said not one stone is going to be left on another with, regard, with the temple. And Mark was writing the gospel after the temple had been destroyed in Jerusalem. So for them, that was the end of the world. It was an apocalyptic moment. So I'm not a subscriber to the view that we're, going, we're all waiting for some moment where there's going to be a divine ethnic cleansing, and then all of the people, some, all of the people that are left are going to be part of this glorious thing. When I was a little boy and we would read biblical passages or psalms about the land of milk and honey, who would look forward to that? <laughs> I mean, a whole, a whole life of now milk and honey? You know, I mean, in their separate thing and sometimes together, I don't know. But that not, why, why would that be something to yearn for? But there it is. So anyway, we believe in both affirmation and transformation when we speak of the reign of Christ. And let me say something about the gospel, which is what I really want to talk about. And it's Jesus before Pilate. I get the feeling when I read this text I have over and over again, and I read it to myself when I'm thinking about it and meditating on it, and I get, got the feeling this time that, you know, Pilate was probably annoyed 
at having to come from Caesarea. Where, where is the, was the center? Caesarea? Caesarea? That's where he lived. He didn't live in Jerusalem. So he had to come down there or come over there, and he had to get involved in this, another one of these things, right? With somebody that in that culture they were all upset about because they was afraid that there were, the balance was being disturbed. So he's showing up now. He's going to have to deal with this person who may be of the cause of some political and social unrest. So he's coming into the place where he's going to interview Jesus, and he just, I, I feel like he's sort of irritable. So he starts to talk to Jesus and he asks him if he's a king. And Jesus doesn't really answer him directly. He said, "Why do you, who, who's been telling you that I'm a king? No. But he says something here that's very important and it's consistent with what I've been saying in the last year or two about the kingdom. Jesus says, my kingdom is not from this world. In the New Revised Standard Version. That's the translation. Now, the authorized version, the King James Version, says, My kingdom is not of this world. So it gives us the idea that, well, if it's not of this world, it must be somewhere else. But from this world may have something to do with uh, the, the values, the way in which we understand ourselves as a culture. The idea that uh, we are the center of the universe, that our intellects, resources, technology, and initiative are enough. I've said this to you many times. When I came down here in 1993, the, the Silicon Valley was flying high in April, as they used to say. And people were making enormous amounts of money. They still are. But then it was really, hi, 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 you know. Uh, and we, they were speaking about this great meritocracy that we were in and all of these talented, imaginative people who were doing all of this stuff, all true. And I never heard one word about serendipity not one. Nobody's saying, you know, I was the right person in the right place at the right time. Circumstances conspired together that produced for me uh, this prosperity. And it didn't come just from me. It came from all of the collaborative resources that are part of this imagination. I, You know, I have, there's a side of me that believes that the imaginative part of our being is sort of connected to the imaginative parts of what it means to be a human being. So we're participants in all of this. I also believe that serendipity can be also negative as well as positive. And there are things that can conspire that produce for us great adversity and suffering. And we need to see what our part is in that and how we uh, move in another direction. But I was surprised not to hear much about serendipity, and I still don't. You know, <coughs> I was in Marin County for 13 years, and there, you know, even in the 19, late 70s and 80s, it was all sort of hippie. We were, you know, Stuart Brand, the author of the Whole Earth Catalog. He lived down on a boat at Gate 5. I knew him. He used to go down there. I baptized a bunch of kids in that. 
in that uh, houseboat community. Marion Saltman, who was the mistress of Alan Watts, an Episcopal priest who became a Buddhist. Exciting times, but not much to do with electrical engineering. Double E, no. So I came here and ran into this, you know, and now I'm thinking, well, there's a whole different way of thinking about the world. So when we think about the reign of God, we need to think about how we see that we have received benefits outside of ourselves that sometimes we're not fully aware of. And when Jesus said, my kingdom is not from this world, he meant that it's not from the values of this world totally, but it's in this world that, that I understand that. And then the big question that in the gospel that we read, there's no answer to, or Pilate actually doesn't say it at the end of this reading, but he speaks about, the, Jesus speaks about the truth. Pilate will ask him, what is truth? And he doesn't answer it. You know? So what would the truth be for the community that wrote John's gospel? It would be the revelatory and redemptive action that they see in the world, the understanding that somehow God is governing, uh, is present to them in a way that has transformative power. That provides us the opportunity to achieve some species of serenity, that gives us the opportunity to begin to see uh, our part in things, you know. I bet there's at least one time in your life where you have understood Gee, you know, here I am, and I'm in this situation, and the reason I am is because uh, God is present to me and is giving me the power and the ability to face the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of me, you know? I hope that what we do here has some effect on what you do out there. What kind of a human being are you going to be? As you, as you face the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of you? That's a question we need to ask ourselves on a daily basis, it seems to me. You know? There are some people who believe that it's okay to just roll down an endless stream of grace, but that doesn't always work. I failed to mention something early on uh, that I think is important, important <laughs> because... Uh, in this country, we have a lot of people who would have no difficulty with speaking about the, 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 the uh, reign of Christ or the, the kingdom of Christ or the lordship of Christ, and they would connect it directly to uh, the importance of being a patriotic American. And what we're having now, in all of this stuff that's happened in Paris and everything, we're having people in leadership in this country or those who might aspire to leadership in this country saying we needed a group that's got to promote Judeo-Christian values. We got to keep all the Muslims out. We have to do this kind of thing because it's necessary after what happens here and so forth. And that's really not who we are and how we understand ourselves. You know, the, the people who wrote the Constitution, a lot of them were Episcopalians. 
but they would not have approved of this kind of exclusionary behavior. It's funny because they lived in the midst of a paradox, didn't they? They organized a country where they understood that you and I need to be free to do all the things we do. We can go anywhere we want. We can be anything we can be. There are things that happen that prevent that. And when they started it, they were in the midst of a, of a situation where a, a large percentage of the population were slaves. So they had to realize, well, these things are all connected. And we're in a situation now where we need to be careful about all of that, I think, and understand the, the reign of Christ uh, in a different way. Here's a great quote in, in, in the bulletin. I take no credit for these. I, Mary has, has done them. But Hans Kung, this is a good book, by the way, on being a Christian. It was written many years ago now, but it's a good book. Uh, the kingdom... It will therefore be a kingdom holy as the prophets foretold of absolute righteousness, of unsurpassable freedom, of dauntless love, of universal reconciliation, of everlasting peace. In this sense, therefore, it will be the time of salvation, of fulfillment, of consummation of God's presence, the absolute future. And the good news about that, I think, is, is that we're all participants in that. We're part of that. And we can make a difference slowly but surely, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. You know, we can do that. And the Feast of Christ the King calls us to uh, affirm that, I think, as, as we live. Amen.